Welcome to episode 71 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment. Chris and Winston aren't able to join us today, but I'm delighted to have Marvin Grope returning for this 1st of April edition of the podcast. Hey Marvin, so how are you doing? Hey Eddie, I'm doing fine. It's nice that you guys, or just you, make it at this time, because this is actually a pretty decent time. Usually when I record podcasts, it's late at night and I'm... Uh, kind of have to say slightly drunk usually during podcast recording <laughs> so it's nice to be sober for once <laughs> is it <Yeah>. really <laughs> it's germany drinking after two is totally fine so i think when we first had you on dfx i think it's been almost a couple of years since then you just started at kern um once you kind of catch us up how are things going at kern these days yeah, I actually think it must have been before the pandemic, so already nearly three years, and that is frustrating in itself. Um, yeah, things at Kern are pretty cool. Um, we managed to get, I mean, if you look back at the last episode, everything was pretty new at Kern, and I remember you having that episode with our head of development, and since then the HD has not only been launched, but well established on the market, and we learned so much about that machine. And at the same time, I'm still, it's mind boggling to me, but we're still telling people we actually have no idea how accurate it is because it's just so accurate. We haven't reached the limit yet. And we've done some crazy stuff in the past two years, some of which we are not allowed to show, which is a pity, but that machine is just a beast. Marvin, I know you've been busy with the work at Kern and you're also trying to wrap up your PhD. How's that going? Ooh, yeah. The PhD. I remember very well, um, about a year ago, um, our CEO, Sebastian Guggenmoos, he said to me, Marvin, consider it very well whether you want to do a PhD on the site. And back then, everything was still nice. So I am a full-time engineer at Kern, and on the site, during the first pandemic wave, I was so bored by the lockdown in Germany that I decided, oh, let's take all of this free time and do a PhD. And my motivation behind this was kind of like, uh, I mean, okay, back then I thought it was like going to be like one or two years of pandemic and not like 10 to 20. But anyways, not to ruin everyone's day here, I thought like people are going to look back and they're going to have two shitty years. They're going to be boring years. And I'm going to look back and I will have two years, which or three years, which made me a PhD. So I thought it was a super cool idea. Um, well, it turns out this PhD thesis is slowly driving me insane. So I actually have to hand it in at the beginning of April. We are now recording at the end of March. So I have a little bit over a week left until I need to hand it in. And let me tell you, I don't think I have ever been further from sanity than right now. <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, all that research and writing. Oh my gosh. I can't yeah. imagine that. Oh, and you have to do your full-time day job in there somewhere. Yes. It's got to be taking its toll. Yeah, I think like from January up until three weeks ago when I took vacation time, I was mostly doing like my usual 40-hour weeks at Kern, and then I went home and I wrote from like 6 in the evening until 11 at night. So for basically three months, I had like... 90-hour weeks, um, no social contacts, not a lot of sports, which were really taking their toll on me. Um, but at the same time, 
writing so intensively on something really made it fun. So I don't think we've made, mentioned the subject of my PhD yet. Um, it's going to be about milling ceramics, and it's called Experimental Analysis of a Ductile Cutting Regime with a Geometric Defined Cutting Edge in Sintered Technical Ceramics. And yes, that is a long title. But basically what it comes down to, and I've explained this already a little bit on some podcasts, um, it's about changing the way the cut happens. Usually when you're milling ceramics, sintered, hard ceramics, you're just tearing out the cranes and... With this one, you're kind of changing the way the cut happens. It's like when you have high-speed milling and all the heat is staying in the chip. Here, you have a high-pressure phase transformation. And that high-pressure phase transformation kind of enables you to produce real chips like you would be milling soft metal. And the part about the geometric defined cutting edges, well, it's not grinding. Ductile behavior is something that has been shown in turning on diamond lathes, and it's something that has been shown on grinding apparatus. But it's not something people have managed, at least in technical ceramics, um, with a cutting tool and with milling. Yeah, and the sintered technical ceramic parts is just to describe the material. The thesis mostly focuses on silicon carbide, which is what you usually have on like sanding paper or on grinding discs. And there is a small segment about silicon and a small segment about zirconia oxide. The main advantage to ductile cutting is much better surface roughness, is that? Yes. You get like better surface roughness because usually when you're like grinding ceramics, you're left with a mate surface. And that mate appearance comes from you're basically tearing out the individual cranes of that polycrystalline material. And I mean, with ductile behavior, you're actually not tearing out the cranes, but you're able to cut through the cranes. So the parts kind of, and this is something I say smiling and with a lot of proudness, they become shiny. And shiny is something I like doing. Kern and shiny definitely goes together. So you're using the uh, the new optical CMM to to measure the results of this. Is that correct? Yeah, we actually got a brand new CMM, um, and that one is pretty special. We are hugely upgrading our metrology for the applications department this year. Um, when you visited Kern, you maybe remember that ginormous but really old CMM from Zeiss, which still had West Germany written on it. And that one has been pretty cool, but because we are using it so much for our access manufacturing for the HD, um, the application department kind of had the need to get a new CMM. And we just got one, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, but we are also getting a second one. We are getting a Zeiss Prismo, I think, so a pretty high precision one for the application department and finally with an automatic probe changer. Um, the old Zeiss didn't have that one, yeah. The new CMM we are getting is a Pruka Alicona. It's called Micro CMM, and it's pretty special because it's an optical CMM. So you do not have a tactile touch probe, but instead it measures with um, vertical focus variation. Um, so you have a automatic lens changer, not a tool changer, but a lens changer with different magnifications. And basically this measuring principle, it's always the same with all confocal measurement systems. You're basically shining light through the lens and recording the reflection. 
And if then you scan through your z-axis and if a pixel has like the maximum contrast to its neighboring pixel, then you're kind of sharp at that, uh, at that position. And then the software records that position. This is like how all optical measurement instruments kind of work. And the micro CMM is pretty special because um, usually those microscopes, those optical measurement machines, they are, um, if you want to measure something that does not fit your current field of view, you need to start stitching. So you start recording one picture and let's say one field of view takes 20 seconds and then you record the next neighboring one with a bit of overlap. And just like taking a panoramic picture, you're actually um, recording the whole part to get to the feature you want to arrive at. And this takes quite some time. And what Pruka Alicona did with the micro CMM is they put a microscope on a real CMM frame. So you have like linear motors and you have air bearing guideways and you have very high precision Heidenhain class scales. So it's like a real CMM. And now you're finally not left with stitching, but you can just record at one point and then jog to a different position. And the precision comes not from stitching, but from the CMM frame, which makes it super fast to measure some features. Yeah, it has one other feature, which is really cool. Um, it's called vertical focus probing. And basically, if you imagine a lens, usually that lens has like a focal point, right? which is like the point where all of the light gets condensed at. If you try to burn something with like a loop, that's that focal point. Um, but this means that the light from the edge of the lens kind of needs to condense down into one point. So it's kind of angled. And they discovered a technology with which you can, from a vertical measurement system, measure straight vertical vaults. And that's mind-blowing. Because, I mean, it's light, but you're measuring from above a vertical wall. And the data is really good. Like, we measured a couple of small holes, and we kind of compared the data we got to tactile measurements, and it, it works out. But it's just like, I mean, you're measuring from above, and you are left with a perfect reconstruction, even the surface of the hole. And to me, this kind of looks funky. Funky how? Yeah, I mean, it just looks too good to be true. Um, usually when you're like scanning anything on a hole, you at least have one artifact, let's say a small piece of dust or anything. And don't get me wrong, this is an amazing device and the measurements, they, they fit to what we expect that part to be. Um, but still, it's like it's a flawless surface and that's funky. I'm wondering what does the algorithm do in, uh, in the background? Do you have any theory on this? The data is just to perfect and I don't want to say that they are faking something but usually we're kind of governed by a very firm universal truth there are limits to what we can know so let's say you make a part eddy and you measure the part and you measure that dimension how do you know that that dimension is correct just think about it how how can you be sure that what you're measuring is actually what you are seeing are you measuring the interaction between your measuring instrument and the surface? Yeah, is it even possible to know this? Yeah, that is that is kind of funny. Because if you look at the newer ISO specs, so for example, there is, you all know the um, ISO for like profile roughness, that's 4278. 
but there is a new ISO spec for characterizing surfaces. And when I say new, it's kind of like 10 years old, but in ISO terms, that's pretty new. It's the ISO 25178. Number is always getting longer. And it characterizes aerial surfaces. And this is one of the few ISOs I've read in complete text. And if you look into it, they take at the beginning a massive amount of time. It's like 10 pages to specify what a surface is. And then they talk about how you can measure a surface. And they are not talking about like you use this instrument, but they are talking about photon interaction with the surface. And this that this photon interaction is different from like an electron interaction or from a force interaction when you measure tactile. So they spend a massive amount of time defining why is that surface what you are seeing in your measuring program. And this raises so many questions about the morality of what we are doing every day. Where does morality enter into machining? You got to be kidding me. (laughs) Yeah, but I know, I know this is a machining podcast, but this is really important for us as machinists. And morality is kind of what it all comes down to. How do you know that what you're doing is good and that you're free in what you're trying to decide to do, that the decisions you're making are good? I'm going to bring it back to morality. Can, Can you even define what you mean in this context? Moral value kind of comes from the subject, the individual, and it has to be a rational decision. We can only decide what is right and wrong, and that is kind of what morality is from this. And the interesting question here would be, what is moral goodness? Because let's let's take an everyday example. You have an umbrella, and obviously that umbrella, when it's raining, is good, right? But when it's not raining, can you say that that umbrella is good? Can you say that it is bad? And there should be some unconditional goods. So that umbrella is only in one condition good. But let's say, for example, you decide to refrain from torture. That should be universally good, right? An unconditional good. And the thing that kind of defines that morality is, is your goodwill. All of your skills you have amassed as a machinist, they can be good. You can, for example, be a good programmer, and you can be a good machinist, and you can be good at setting up parts, something I'm horrible at. But if you use these skills for evil purposes, you're no longer good. So just that your skill is good does not mean that you are good. And the only constant here is that if you have good intentions, you may do good. And I know there's this proverb that says the road towards hell is paved with those. But the will, your good will is what sets you apart here. I think I'm starting to see where you're headed with the uh, universal values of good and evil. But what exactly is will? I mean, we got to define that if we can even have this conversation. Yes. And this is really difficult. I mean, this is something people have been talking about for probably centuries. It comes down to will is your capacity to form intentions and then to commit to them so you stick with them. And will is also the decision to do good or bad. I mean, I would obviously prefer it if everybody did good, but you can also take up the decision to do bad. So there's definitely some judgment involved here. How how can a machinist apply this in their trade? Okay, well, I mean, in the shop, you are not really looking for moral value on the outside. Because you have so many people telling us what to do. There's like 
people like me, influencers on Instagram, who tell you go buy a Kern, it's awesome. And then there's like large tattooed YouTubers who scream into the camera that everything is awesome and titanium will die. And then you have like politicians telling you what to do. So the outside is kind of not something you should listen to as a machinist. But as a machinist, if you want to grow and want to become better, you should look inward. And let's go back to you making a part, Eddie. You're making a part for one of your customers. And obviously you can make that part and you're a good machinist. It can be in specification and all of the tolerances match. But that is not good in itself. That's just the right thing. But here it comes down to where you as a machinist can grow. It's not just enough to do the right thing. You have to do the right thing, but also for the right reasons. Let's say you're not ripping off your customer. That is a good thing, isn't it? I would say so, if I want to stay in business. Yes. So I'm thinking this over. If I wanted to live this or take this path that you, you're talking about here, um, it's an individual thing. Come springs from my free will. Yes. So, but what is my motivation for giving every customer a fair price? What keeps me from cheating? That is exactly the right question. And this is where you can grow again. Let's say your motivation is to have a good reputation. You said you don't want to rip off your customer. You want to stay in business. Well, if you want to have a good reputation, it's good practice to not let it get out that you're sometimes ripping off people. And I, I imagine you're not doing this because I know you very well, Eddie. So I'm not implying this. We are talking in conjecture here. Yes, this is abstract, very abstract conversation. Um, but let's say... Just because you want to stay in business, this wouldn't be a good thing then or from a goodwill. But for example, if you keep your prices the same for everybody, if you treat everybody fairly because it's the right thing to do, not just because you profit from it, then it should be universally good, right? An unconditional good. And this principle, this fair dealing, if you really think about it, this is what we all expect from every facet in our machining trade. Is there really that much flexibility i mean if you apply this morality to measuring measuring something it's either this value or it's not right there's not a lot of wiggle room in there how would you apply this kind of as a universally accepted value earlier we spoke about that new iso to 25178 and let's keep with that example because it's a good fit if you are measuring surface roughness it's usually pretty straightforward right um, you take one of those tactile probe things, you set it on the part, you press the button, it measures, you have your value, right? But this is not really what it's all about. If you look into the ISO norm, the 4278 for tactile surface roughness measurements, there is pages upon pages on measuring length, what filters you want to use. And now you could be like, well, then I don't use filters. But usually the device is using the filters for you. And something which annoys me to no end is if I look at not only our competition, it's pretty much every machine tool company I've seen do it, is they publish roughness values, RA values that are out of this world. And then you look at the part and you're like, um, no, this is definitely not it. And the reason behind this is that they are not looking at the measurement in the spirit of the ISO. So one example here is um, you have a certain measuring length and that measuring length is needed for the filter. 
usually your filter is one-fifth of the measuring length, but there are set ISO values for that one. And the measuring length is also in the ISO set on your expectation of the surface. So you kind of need to know roughly what surface roughness, and that's a funny joke, okay. Now, but you need to know what surface roughness you kind of have before you measure it. So at least make a judgment call because this defines your measuring length. And the easiest way to cheat on a surface measurement is that you take a smaller measuring length. So for example, let's say you have a surface which is four micro inches in surface roughness. Um, usually you would be expected to take a measurement length of one and a half millimeters for this one. But now you're only taking a measurement length of 150 microns, which is actually the optical length, the field of view of most optical surface measurement instruments. And then you just put a single profile in and you look at that profile. It's not going to be four micro inches. It's going to be a lot better. And a lot is like, it's probably going to be like one micro inches RA. And that is because the filter used is dependent on the length. And now the filter is very, very small. And you cannot not use a filter. You need that filter to remove things like waviness or shape from your part. But if the filter is too small, it's not going to remove waviness. It's going to remove roughness. And then you're, now we're coming back to why this is moral. But I just explained to you, all of these settings are valid settings, but they are just not valid maybe for the surface roughness you are measuring right now. But you are following the wording of the ISO norm, but you're not following the spirit. So you're kind of not doing the right thing. And what would your motivation be to do the right thing, to follow the spirit? There's room for bias in any of these measurements, right? So there's some motivation there. You know, the CMM marketing guy may want to show his machine in the best light. So his tendency is to bias those ISO rules such that maybe it's not an accurate measurement, but it sure looks good in the in the brochure, right? Say, you know, your intentions are good and you want to make sure your biases lean towards being fair to your customer. Yes, and that's it. And this fairness, I mean, you're not profiting from it. There is no higher reason behind it. It's just pure reasons. You don't only do this because you don't want your customer to measure a worse result. So not to get called out on your measurement. This is something why a lot of precision manufacturers are very careful with their measurements. They kind of don't want some measuring guy to scream at them, ah, but your roughness is actually 20% worse. But this is not pure. And you kind of want to be fair, and that is pure. And I'd like to introduce a principle here, um, one I always try to abide by and obviously sometimes fail. Let's call it the machinist's imperative. And it's kind of catchy. Can we call the podcast episode by this title? I think we can. Okay. So the machinist's imperative, it kind of implies you are your personal legislator of morality. It is up to you to do good from your goodwill. And I think this should be the first formulation of our machinist's imperative. Your actions must not be tied to one single particular condition. You should follow the spirit and not the letter of the ISO 4278, because this can then be applied universally. And this is actually something you want. 
you want for everyone to measure exactly the same fair way because then we are not talking about is it fair to you or is it fair to your customer it becomes something universal and not only will you then be in a better position because you are not having that daily moral struggle are you measuring correctly or just to send off that part which would be a selfish reason but it's also that in our quest, and I kind of consider all of us apprentices of the mechanical arts, even if we operate a CNC machine, we want to have a common crown. That common crown, that universal crown, could be something like laws of nature. I mean, laws of nature and metaphysical concepts like morality don't seem to have much overlap. Like take Newton's law of gravity. Is it really moral that an apple falls to the ground? Newton is a fantastic example, actually, because I know that law. So the law of gravity states that every particle attracts another particle, and the force is proportional to the product of their masses and inversely proportional to their distance. So larger bodies draw harder on each other, and the further the distance, the lower the draw. I think this is why we think large machines are so cool. It's just their weight drawing us in. <laughs> I don't think I heard an answer to my question there. Yes. I'm playing on time. Okay, it comes down to a certain credo. You want your every action to be so right, so valuable, so unconditionally good, that it could at any point become a law of nature. And then, when it becomes a law of nature, a universal law, everybody would need to abide by this. We cannot choose to just not follow gravity. So, I mean, how cool would it be if we couldn't choose to measure badly? So are you saying on every measurement we take, we have to sit in judgment of ourselves to decide whether this is something we want everyone to follow? I mean, this is a bit different than that golden rule you probably know from the Bible. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to butcher the translation here because I've only read the Bible in German. Um, and it's been a long time, but it kind of says, do unto others as you want done unto you, right? Exactly. Yes. And let's... Let's give you an everyday example here. We take my most painful machining flaw. And if Stefan Winter is listening, he will now be laughing himself silly. I absolutely hate chamfering counterbores. I think it's senseless. I mean, come on, it's such a waste of time. Either the bolt will deform if you have a really hard material, or the unchamfered edge of the counterbore will deform. Why should I take the time to... Um, chamfer a counterbore. But now let's think we would apply this to the golden rule. Now everybody would be allowed to not chamfer counterbores and Stefan Gotteswinter would have daily anger fits. And besides those anger fits, which are pretty scary because he's pretty large, um, this would make every product overall a bit worse just because that single scientist from Germany cannot be bothered to fetch a charm for ant mill that is smaller than the standard one we have in the machine. Society has rules whether you feel like you have to follow them or not. In the end, for society to hold together, you need to follow it. Yes. And I believe this is our like second thing of the machinist's imperative. There is some universal duty. We should always deburr our parts, always jump for countersinks. And if you think about it rationally, there's no reason to not do it. Well, I mean, is there some motivation? What is it that, that conditions the machinists to do the right thing? What reward is there? Or is there a higher reason? Yeah, I mean, this is really hard, especially if you're an atheist and you do not believe in a next life. 
Why should lowering your happiness in this life, so you have to get a charm for Endmill and they are never fun to measure, make any sense to you? But this comes back to our machinist's imperative. You have the imperfect duty to do the right thing. You're a machinist after all. I mean, I'm potentially putting myself at a disadvantage to those shops that might be cheating a little bit, right? So I'm potentially spending time doing what could be uncompensated work so that I've done the right thing when that part hits the customer. But now I'm competing potentially with shops who don't do it and charge less. Yeah, I mean, you're, you have a little bit of reason there, but it comes back to that duty. And this is something you can find everywhere in machining. We are always looking to further the end of ourselves and of others. I mean, the whole world kind of runs on machine parts. And I've seldom met a machinist, and if I have, I probably have forgotten that meeting, that does not try to improve things for themselves and those around it. This can be like cool tool mount next to the machine. You probably have seen like um, the Datron mounts they did on the Neo. Like I think Mark did it at Datron Germany. That's a really cool mount. And... There's no reason to do it, right? But this helps others because you can keep your tooling clean. And then maybe it's a card to remove dirty racks without getting yourself dirty. This is also, I mean, this does not give you a competition advantage over your, well, competition. But this is something people do. And why do they do them? They do these improvements because they are not just for you, but because it's a good thing to do, the right thing. You're following the machinist's imperative. It's moral. And this kind of means I like you and then I would like to buy you a beer and have a chat and not forget about meeting you. Interesting. So like when I'm making a really tough part, you know, I tend to focus on am I hitting the tolerances? Am I going to crash the machine? But you're saying I need to also be judging every action while I'm at that machine on whether it's inherently good. I mean, this comes down to autonomity. It's not okay to just follow your part and until it's done like just like follow the tolerances this is the same with like workplace guidelines on safety they're they are boring and they're they're for mostly one reason and that is to cover the behind of the supervisors and obviously you eddie you are your own supervisor so you can set up your own workplace guidelines and i'm a little bit jealous but remember how i said you should look into the spirit of an iso specification and not the letter this is not following a law made by others. This is giving yourself a law. And this is kind of the basis of autonomy. And I mean, if you're looking at a part and you're making a part and you judge every action on that part yourself, you're removing yourself from influences from other people. This approach kind of removes authorities from your life and everybody who has met me talking to my superiors knows I have a large authority problem. Oh, I think I hear you now, because I'm a moral creature with my own agency. I'm not necessarily following ISO rules because it calls for me to do so on the print. I'm doing so for a deeper motivation. I mean, you can, and the ISO exists for a reason. But the reason you're following these instructions, it needs to come from your own free will. And your reasons for doing it must be good. So let's take that ISO. I mean... I am following the ISO when I measure surface roughnesses. I'm just following the spirit and not the letter. And most of the time my measurements are actually worse off because of that. But it's just like 
for example, that filter, if I see the filter, this too small filter setting, which would be allowed by the ISO, is removing waviness and roughness. I mean, in good consciousness, in good morality, I cannot use that filter then. I need to use the filter that just removes what it was made for, the waviness of the part. And this is the same with like workplace safety instructions I just spoke about. You should wear safety goggles because it's universally good. It will protect you and protecting you will protect your business and your loved ones. You shouldn't wear them because someone tells you to wear them, but because it's the right thing. And this comes from a German and let me tell you in Germany, no one wears safety goggles, but it's actually a really good idea. And then you must set up the law for yourself as this is the only way to get bound to your actions and decisions. And earlier we spoke about free will. And we said that free will is to commit to a course of action you set yourself. And this is kind of like, this is looping back. So you want to do good and you want to do it out of your own free will. And then you can still follow instructions if they are good, if they are right, if they are unconditionally good. If I take in consideration the machinist imperative, you know, at the end of the day, I used to you know, take a part into inspection. And if I end up having to scrap it, because I was off on tolerance, uh, that kind of ruined my whole day. But now I'm going to feel good about it because I did the right thing. Yes, you did the right thing. You did good then. You sacrifice your own material needs for the better of society. Yes. And in the end, all of humanity, life becomes better for everyone, including me. That's, that's the machinist's imperative. Speaking of measurement, didn't Kant also say that all of space and time are merely forms of intuition or you can measure all you want but the true nature of your machine parts is ultimately unknowable i'm gonna guess that that wasn't mentioned in the cmm vendors marketing literature <laughs> i haven't found that one no so that will have to be a conversation for april 1st next year yes i guess so well marvin i really appreciate you being on the show i'm glad you had time to catch up with us on this april 1st special episode and uh, i We'll say goodbye. Thanks for having me, Eddie. Have a good time until next year. Bye-bye.